This is The Guardian. Carruthers and welcome to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Beth Mead is back. Stoppage time drama as Arsenal make a late comeback to beat Aston Villa. We have a three-way tie at the top of the WSL table after Manchester City's 5-0 win over Bristol City. Leicester hold Manchester United and Chelsea beat West Ham. Tottenham are just behind them after a 3-1 win over Brighton and Everton got their first points of the season continuing Liverpool's Anfield hoodoo in the Merseyside derby. We'll head stateside to see who's made the NWSL playoffs. Spoiler alert, Megan Rapino played a big part in the final day of the regular season. We'll have all of that, plus we'll take your questions. And that's today's Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Women's Football Weekly is supported by Google Pixel, the only phone engineered by Google and official mobile phone of Arsenal Football Club, Liverpool Football Club and the England teams. Google Pixel is helping fans get closer to the game they love with access to fresh content and never-before-seen footage of their favourite players and teams. The new Pixel 8 and Pixel 8 Pro are fast and secure with the most advanced Pixel cameras yet. And Google AI powers amazing features for photos and video so you can get even closer to the game. Search Google Store to find out more. What a panel we have today. Susie Rack, how's your week been? Yeah, good. I'm very hungover, just to warn you. So, you know, we're going to struggle. Ah, this is what the hoodie and hat combination is indicating to us, is it? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very much so. Monday night comedy is not an advisable thing. It's not a joke on Tuesday morning. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> get on the circuit Faye get on the circuit I know I, I, they need me don't they they need me Rachel Brown Phyllis first appearance of the season lovely to see you good morning how's things with you it's been a while I don't think I've seen you since I saw you styling out with your wonderful hairstyles in Australia well I'm still doing the magic of juggling children and job and I'll be doing that this morning um, my husband told me last night he's going out at half past seven this morning. I was like, brilliant, because I've got a podcast at eight and I've got to bring the children to school. So I will be disappearing at some point, 10 minutes, and I'll be back. So, uh, yes, all going well. The juggle is real, mate. We all get it. We get it. Emma Sanders, a pod debut, BBC Journo. We love drinking with you on uh, on various trips away. And now you're on my four box screen. I love this. How are you? Yeah, I mean, that was a nice professional introduction. So thanks for that, Faye. But uh, no, it's, it's good, to, good to be on the podcast. It's a bit too early for rum. Otherwise, I'd definitely have some with me because, yeah, I feel like we can't have a chat without, without a rum and coke. feels a bit weird, actually. Yeah, it does. Are we even going to be able to converse? I'm not sure. We we shall find out very quickly. Uh, let's begin at the Emirates, shall we? And another another smug Susie Rack moment, of course. Another Sunday afternoon of chaos in front of more than 35,000 fans in North London. Jonas Eideval's Gunners scoring twice in added time through Casey McCabe in the 92nd minute and then Alessia Russo in the 94th. It turned the game on its head after Maz Pacheco had given 
Aston Villa the lead after 25 minutes. I mean, what's this Arsenal side trying to do to you, Susie? One nice, simple, comfortable win would be quite nice, wouldn't it? It would, yeah. But uh, I mean, I'm not going to complain. It was very enjoyable. It was a very enjoyable finish to the game. But yeah, they're just, I, I thought there was a real lack of creativity in the final third, lack of movement, and just not much consideration for the final ball and a sort of a little bit of hit and hope, get it through bodies kind of attitude. And it wasn't until Beth came on sort of very late on that you actually saw a little, and obviously Katie McCabe for her goal, you saw the sort of runs into the box that you need to split things open. Yeah, well, she was the creativity, wasn't she? I mean, uh, the Beth Mead revenge tour was very much in town, back on the field after 11 months out with that ACL injury. Came on on the 88th minute, Rachel, and set up the winner, written in the stars. It was wonderful. I was there doing the game, and to see the changes that Jonas had made, it really needed to have an impact. Um, As you mentioned, it was so flat in that second half. Flat, you know, bank of Rousseau and Mornham, going higher up to try and support her, but just zero movement at all. No depth in, in the movement, no dynamic runs. I think when Lacasse came on and Palova, Lacasse particularly stretching uh, the play down the right-hand side, started to create a few gaps in that really stalwart um, Aston Villa defence. And that's what needed to happen. Needed to stretch out that back line, but then have some precision. The crosses that were in, they lost count of how many balls into the box Arsenal actually played, but... None of them had any killer instincts. The killer instinct that we we kind of uh, associate with teams like Arsenal. And uh, yes, so when Beth Mead came on, she just had the poise and the timing in you know a tight area on the edge of the box to draw a couple of Villa players and then lay off for Russo. And poor goalkeeping. I was disappointed by Van Domsela, made a couple of errors. And this one, you desperately you know, critical, right at the death of the game, to give the win to Arsenal, which ultimately they did deserve it. And I'm sure the team and Jonas will have learnt a lot from it because much improved performances are required. Yeah, producer Lucy informs me 50 crosses into the box in total. Nice round number for them to have to deal with. And they can't carry on like this, Emma, surely, can they? Jonas ours, as Rachel says, is going to have to find a way to get them to click into gear. Yeah, they've just been a bit too predictable for me. You know, the fact that they have put in 50 crosses and not really been able to do much with them until right at the end of the game is just not really good enough. And they'll get caught out against teams who are more consistent. You know, Villa, they're a good side. We know that. But they have conceded goals late already this season, obviously against Manchester United in their opening game. So we know that they they do have a tendency to, to maybe drop their levels in patches. And I just think, you know, that kind of performance wouldn't be... Um, forgivable against the likes of, you know, Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United, that obviously Arsenal are competing for um, and with. So, yeah, definitely needed that victory. I think Jonas Edeval maybe started to get under quite a bit of pressure given their starts of the season. So that would have done them some good. And hopefully now that they're starting to get a few players back, obviously Beth Mead is a massive one that will only only boost them. Yeah, it was the added time, though, wasn't it, that turned the whole game on its head. 12 minutes added in total. Carla Ward was left baffled by it. She said, someone tell me where 12 minutes comes from, please. I have no idea. There are a few stoppages, but 12 minutes is ludicrous. And that, sadly, is where the game is going. Uh, thanks to Luke, who sent us this email on Women's Football Weekly at theguardian.com. Hi, I've just finished watching Arsenal snatch a win from Aston Villa. And I'm so fed up with football at the moment. Again and again, I see these stupidly long stoppage times 
lines being handed out when bigger teams are on top across both men's and women's games in the past and present. Villa worked their nails to the bone to defend their lead and honestly lost out because unlike the likes of Arsenal, Man United, Chelsea and Manchester City, they don't have like-for-like swaps on the bench. Arsenal had about five international forwards on the pitch in one go at the end of the match. I'm just jaded and fed up with the same old problems still being in football from when I watched back in the 90s. I know you may say Arsenal deserved the win for their attacking, but Villa were asked to defend for 105 minutes. Tell me any team that could have survived that. As a football fan, it was great to see Mead back on the pitch, but as a Villa fan, it's frustrating to see the divide getting bigger with the way the big clubs can snap up huge names despite already having enough just because they can afford it. From a very fed-up Villa fan. Um, Similarly, Craig asks, where to now for Aston Villa? Great squad, but results not going well. I mean, it's another pretty gutting result for them to take, Susie. Do you think they're underperforming or is it just a horror start? What did you make of Luke and Craig's comments? I think they're a little bit overdramatic, to be honest. I mean, first off, I just wanted to say something about Carla Ward's rant on 12 Minutes because I love Carla Ward. I think she's a fantastic manager, great person. But my God, I mean, there were seven substitutions in the second half, in the 45 minutes of the second half, before there were another two in added time. So, you know, firstly, you've got seven substitutions. Then you've also got another couple in added time. So really, you should be getting more. And then there were loads of stoppages in that game as well, particularly in the second half, including for a like, lengthy check on Rachel Daly with a head injury. There was a, another head injury for Rachel Corsi early on as well. So I actually when they held up 12 minutes, was not surprised at all. I felt like it had been that kind of game. So I I thought that was a little bit of a red herring. That said, I thought Villa actually played really, really well. Playing without Kenza Darley, uh, you know, not having Kirstie Hanson through suspension. I think they're massive, massive losses. I think they were significantly improved on their game against Liverpool. And I thought the signs were really, really positive. The, you know, taking the lead and holding on for that length of time when you're you know not necessarily playing your best best football which you're not necessarily going to be able to do against a team like Arsenal but yeah I mean I found it a little bit strange to say that the big teams can sweep up all the big players when they've got the likes of Rachel Daly uh, the league top scorer in their side and uh, Jordan Nobbs a fantastic player and Ebony Salmon you've just recruited uh, Adriana Leon coming in I mean, yes, there is a gap, but I don't think they're necessarily the team to be moaning about how big that gap is, per se. So, yeah, I I actually think the signs are really positive. I think the points will come for them. I think the Liverpool game was bad. I think Carla Ward came out and said that and was really unhappy with it. But they seem to have, you know, refound their groove. I think they badly, badly missed Kenza Darley. Really, really badly. Yeah, and actually Laura makes a really good point on um, Twitter slash X, whatever the heck it's called, Rachel. Arsenal have won all their points in injury time this season. Aston Villa have lost four points in the closing stages of matches. Do you think these teams' results are actually obscuring true performance levels? Well, I think that's irrelevant. At the end of the day, performance, whether you deserve it or not, we came to accept that for the Lionesses this summer. If you win, you win. So uh, the difference is... Remember about three or four years ago under uh, Montemuro, I remember Arsenal having sort of three, four subs on the bench and you think, wow, they're really scratching around for, for squad depth. They have thoroughly addressed that. And that is what they have at their disposal now is wonderful squad depth, almost, you know, wanting to rival the likes of Chelsea who have, you know, by far the best squad depth, in my opinion, in the, in the Women's Super League. So that's where Arsenal are at. And unfortunately, that's where Villa are at. Yes, the starting eleven is is pretty good, 
and can hold out against the attacking prowess of Arsenal for, you know, as long as they did, 90 minutes plus. But when they lose a starting player like Kenza Dali, their performances are dented. What they can do to other teams is reduced. And that's what we saw against Arsenal. They defended brilliantly, but they really offered very, very little to try and punish Arsenal. So Arsenal's squad depth has been addressed. They've improved massively over the last two, three years. And that's why they were able to eke out that result at the Emirates on Sunday. Wow, panel not pulling any punches this morning. Uh, Let's get over to Lee Valley Sports Village where Leicester's remarkable start to the season continued. They came away from Manchester United with an impressive point and Willie Kirk's side had been under the cosh throughout the game but they took the lead through Aileen Whelan on the hour mark but it lasted just seven minutes. United defender Maya Letizia heading home to draw Mark Skinner's side level. They've actually conceded the first goal in every game they've played so far this season, Manchester United, but have fought back each time to remain unbeaten beaten in all competitions we kind of have to credit United's fighting spirit here Emma but they did have chances to win this one and those drop points could be costly towards the end of the season yeah I think those drop points could really be costly actually you know Leicester have obviously had a great start to the season I think Willie Kirk deserves a hell of a lot of praise because I actually think you know he's he's right up there as one of the best coaches in the WSL and he's proving it at the moment he's getting the best out of his players he's given confidence to some young players he's given them opportunities and they yeah I think they've they've played really well again on the weekend Manchester United had to really really work hard for it but I am slightly concerned from a Manchester United perspective at just how much they're needing their bench you know it's it's a good thing that they've got the depth and the depth is proving its worth but at some point I think you need to get the job done a little bit earlier because it's getting a bit ropey towards the end of the game each week with United at the moment and obviously you know, three back-to-back draws on paper isn't really great for them. So that was disappointing. But yeah, I mean, they showed last season, didn't they? When they were still sort of in the title race, I think a lot of people thought they might have dropped off earlier than they did. And they showed that they have got that spirit and they have got that ability to come back and win games or get points out of games. And they did that again this weekend. So you have to credit them for that. But actually, I'd, I'd flip it and say, you know, it was a brilliant result for Leicester going away to Manchester United and coming away with a draw. Yeah, if I was Mark Skinner, I'd be really disappointed with that. Yeah, we'll talk Leicester in a second. But, you know, you talk about the depth on the bench. That's going to really be needed because some awful news to come out of this one. Defender Gabby George's season looks to be over. It was confirmed she picked up an ACL injury. Wishing her all the best, of course. And we will talk about some of those selection challenges that this creates for Mark Skinner. We're going to be previewing their Champions League tie against PSG in part two. But Willie Kirk's Leicester sits second in the table Susie, just behind Manchester City, only on goal difference. And across 22 games last season, they picked up just 16 points. They already have seven to their name this time round after just three games. It's, it's a real turnaround, isn't it? Yeah, I think as Emma has said, the, the key is that Willie Kirk is a, a really, really good manager. Um, he knows how he wants his teams to play. He's like, he's got an identity and a, like, I was going to say formation, but not a specific formation, a strategy in his head for the way he wants his team to look. And he finds players that fit into that in the best possible way. And he's really, really effective at that. So he gets the best out of players because he he fits them into a system that really like exploits their strengths. And I think the level of confidence they're going to take, as we said earlier, from from this result against Man United, regardless of you know sort of the injuries to Man United and the fact that they've been 
in the middle of their first set of Champions League fixtures, qualifiers, is sort of irrelevant in that, you know, they're a a team of a level that should be able to cope with that. So, yeah, I think they'll take an incredible amount of confidence with this. And, yeah, we'll go into the rest of the season really, really strongly. Obviously, I think they're going to dip away at some point, but really, really impressive. Um, Man City up next. (laughs) Could this be a moment where the wheels come off? Probably. But, you know, I think they've shown that they can perform, play their game and really take quite a lot of points off of the the teams sort of mid-table and below. Yeah, to Merseyside we go next and it's three derbies at Anfield, three wins for Everton. A 1-0 victory for the blue half of the city, courtesy of a 31st minute header from Blues captain Megan Finnegan and the first points of the season for Martin Sorensen's side, while Liverpool slipped to their first defeat of the campaign. And it's fair to say Matt Beard was not best pleased with the officials after Missy Bocairn saw an early goal controversially disallowed for offside. I quote... I'm just sick to death of it, to be honest. And it's not just me, is it? I think everyone says it. I've just been in to see the officials, he means. They'll review it. That's it. I just think it's embarrassing, really. I mean, it's the Merseyside derby, uh, but it's also the Rachel Brown finish derby. Two former sides of yours, Rachel. What did you make of it? (laughs) I love it when Everton win. So I'm sorry, but Matt Beard, we've seen on the TV we played. It was offside. And I think... You know, decisions are not going to be made because we don't have the technology to review them on pitch, VAR or, or semi-automated offside systems. And so just keep quiet because until you've seen it, until then you're making a little bit of a show of yourself and you're using it as an excuse. End the rant. Everton reigned supreme in Merseyside. I'm delighted because they had a rough start, a start that's really kind of questioning Brian Sorensen and his squad and, and the recruits and see Tony Duggan on the score sheet last week. Great to have her back. But yeah, reasonable performance, better performance, more attacking performance, clean sheets and a 1-0 win at Anfield means a world to capture like Megan Finnegan. Yeah, it was incredible, wasn't it? And you were at Anfield covering the game, Emma, and it's fair to say pretty frustrating afternoon all round for the home side. Yeah, really frustrating, especially given their start to the season as well. I know there was a lot more optimism this time because, you know, as Rachel says, Everton have quite clearly got that stranglehold over Liverpool in in the WSL Merseyside derby. And Liverpool haven't even scored a goal at Anfield in the WSL. So, you know, all of these fans that are going to watch them at their sort of main stadium haven't really had much to celebrate. Obviously, they had that brief moment where they uh, they thought Missy Bocones had given them the lead and then obviously it was ruled out for offside. So at least they had that. Yeah, just really, really frustrating because I, I actually 100% agree with, with with Rachel there. Yes, the goal may have been offside, but I don't think it was so scandalously clear that there needs to be a whole, you know, talking point about the referees afterwards. I thought the referees on the whole were, were pretty good. And look, this happened in the first 10 minutes of the game. Liverpool were not good enough for the next 84 or whatever. So it, it's it's no excuse for me. Everton deserved to win. Defensively, I thought they were really, really impressive. Claire Wheeler having to come in and replace Lucy Hope within about you know three minutes of of the game after she left for an injury, and I thought Wheeler was absolutely fantastic. Bearing in mind they Everton were injury hit, they didn't have Sarah Holmgard, who's such an important player for them. She's been out, so they didn't really have a natural left sided fullback. And Wheeler's come in and done a fantastic job. And I think in the second half, Heather Payne as well was was really, really good down that right hand side. So Everton deserved it a hundred percent and. 
Liverpool just, again, they just didn't turn up in a derby and they can't keep doing that. They have to turn up against Everton. They have to give their fans something to cheer about. And if they can't, then take that derby back to Prenton Park because at the end of the day, these are the types of games that if Liverpool want to be progressing in that sort of top half of the middle table, then they need to start getting points off Everton. Yeah, it's a really good point, isn't it? And it's something actually that Emma Hayes has raised before in terms of what your home crowd, as in the women's team's home crowd, give and the proximity of the fans to the pitch and and how that can make a difference versus being in a in a main stadium, if you like, where, you know, some of that atmosphere in some stadia gets lost a little bit but just one question Susie does there need to be some kind of discourse between I mean maybe there has been between PGMOL and some of the managers at the moment because there seems to be a lot of referee throwing under the bus you know we had the incident last week was really awful with Alex Greenwood and I think Emily Heaslip will admit it was probably not the best decision to have made but at the same time you know the kind of abuse of the referees and and the constant barraging of them when actually managers don't know whether or not a call has been right straight after they've seen the the post-match interviews. Is this helpful in any way? Do they need to sit down and and have a chat together? I think so. I think it's more a little, like I said, uh, for the Carl Awards moan about the 12 minutes, I think it's a little bit of like deflection tactics and that's really unfair on the referees because they don't deserve that. And I get that managers are going to want to sort of protect their players and not criticise. And they almost have to find something to pick at to be able to then, you know, take their, their real you know frustrations into the dressing room, keep it private, that kind of thing. But I think there needs to be a conversation about that more than anything, because, you know, I think if Carla watches back that second half, she will find that 12 minutes, which she couldn't believe was possible. I think if... Uh, Matt watches back the offside call, he'll say, actually, yeah, pretty marginable, but probably correct, which I think everyone watching thought it was. So, yeah, I think there needs to be a little bit more fairness, a little bit less thrown under the bus. And yeah, I mean, we can pick up referees when there are, you know, glaringly obvious mistakes. But I think, you know, we've seen the refereeing not change, but just tone it down a little bit after that Alex Greenwood mistake. You know, a lot was left in the Arsenal game that allowed the game to flow. You know, there are a fair few yellow cards and tackles in there that, you know, could have could have easily been given uh, that way and weren't. And I thought, you know, I think I think it's it's the you know, they're finding a balance with these new rules. It's gonna take a little bit of time to bed in and give them a little bit of time. But also don't have a go at them for things that were, you know, that are outside their control, like a lack of VAR, you know, if that's not their as individuals um problem to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, A real lovely moment pre-match, by the way, which we should mention as well. Tash Dowie received a guard of honour as well as a special mosaic display from the fans. It was really lovely. She's had such an amazing career, spanned almost two decades. So a real fitting tribute to her. Far more clear cut at the Joy Stadium where Manchester City cruised to a 5-0 victory over Bristol City. Braces for Jill Rod and the returning Bunny Shaw, plus a layer Alexandri header. And that was all before half-time as well. In fact, all five goals were headers as well, as if we needed reminding of their aerial prowess and the danger from wide areas with crosses of such high quality flying in left, right and centre. It means Gareth Taylor's side sit top of the table on goal difference. I mean, massive Emma, isn't it, to have their talismanic striker Bunny Shaw back in the fold. Her manager praised her quality and her personality and we certainly saw her influence in this one. 
yeah, has she even been away? I mean, she's literally come back and she's straight away scoring again and she just looks like she hasn't missed any football at all. Um, yeah, she looks fantastic. She looks in really, really good form. I thought actually when she came on against Chelsea in that, yeah, bit of a horror show with the whole Alex Greenwood fiasco, she looked really sharp when she came on in that match as well. So really, really good for Manchester City to have her back because they've obviously got threats all over the pitch. Jill Ward has been a fantastic signing. She's proven that so far. Obviously, she got two goals as well. She's continuing her her bright start. But I think Bunny just gives them something different. She gives them, obviously, that that height as well, which I think she just takes away players in set pieces. So that brings in other players into the game. You know, you look at the likes of Alana Kennedy. She's obviously a set from set pieces. So when you've got multiple threats to think about that obviously causes more problems for the defenders but the thing that I like the most about Bunny is her intelligence in terms of the timing of the runs her movement and just her tenacity in that six yard area I think that's something that maybe City have lacked in the past that was what Ellen White used to give them and then towards the end of her career probably wasn't getting in the six yard area as much I think with Manchester City and then, you know, since Bunny's kind of come into the team, that is what she does best. She's just always in the right place at the right time. And I think some people think that's down to luck, but it's it's 100% not. It's a skill, in my opinion. And and I think she's the best at it in, in the WSL and, and she's proving that. Yeah, agreed. Um, no consolation, Susie, but Bristol City definitely looked a lot more defensively solid in the second half. I mean, is it just a case of getting next Sunday's visit of Arsenal out the way, then regrouping a little bit maybe as they go into the international break? I think so. I mean, they know it's going to be a tough season, right? Like They know these games, particularly against the top, top sides, are going to be really, really difficult. I actually think it's hugely impressive that they kept a clean sheet in the second half after conceding five in the first. I mean, there's real fears that it could be a cricket score because, you know, you can see five in 45 minutes and your confidence must be pretty sharp. Um, so to like what was said at halftime, what they did at halftime is really, really impressive to then see out the game at that uh, scoreline. So I think there's you know positives to take in that respect, play that second half against Arsenal. And it could be a different story. That said, when you're five goals up, as City were, you're not necessarily going for it as, as heavy as you were in the first half. So, you know, there's lots of um, variables. Five headers, though, I mean, defensively, you've got to be unhappy at that, right? Like, I also think, you know, looking across the games, that there's just been a huge number of headers and a huge number of, like, defensive errors in sort of looking after set pieces. Um, you know, you look at the uh, Megan Finnegan goal or the Aston Villa goal and... Neither Mas Pacheco or Megan Finnegan are jumping for those balls. They're completely unmarked. They're literally allowed to almost just walk up and nod it into the net. Like a lot of teams are going to be doing a lot of work on uh, set piece management and marking and defensive fragility over the next couple of weeks. Because, yeah, I mean, those were bad enough, but conceding five headed goals in 45 minutes is really really embarrassing yeah I agree with you it's um oh god I'm doing a lot of agreeing today you're a lot of giving me really <laughs> really robust opinions on everything and I'm going yeah I agree <laughs> uh, that's it for part one in part two we'll wrap up the rest of the WSL action look ahead to Manchester United's trip to Paris and head stateside to check in on the NWSL
Welcome back to part two of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. And back to Saturday evening we go as well. Chelsea got the better of West Ham under the lights at King's Meadow in a 2-0 victory. Sam Kerr marking her return to the starting lineup with a trademark header, making it 1-0 just past the half-hour mark before Erin Cuthbert made sure of the three points, slotting home in the first minute of added time. Also in the 11 for the first time since February was Fran Kirby, eight months after her last start, having recovered from that nasty knee injury that kept her out of the World Cup. A real joy to see her back out there. And with Mia Fischel and Guru Wrighton both missing from this one, it was really important to get her and Sam Kerr fit and firing again, Emma. What a combo. Yeah, what a combination. It's so exciting to see those two play. I absolutely love watching them. You know, to have Frank Kirby come back in the side is is such a big boost for Chelsea. What she offers them is is not only that that connection and that combination with Sam Kerr, but also her own creativity. You know, we felt her loss for England in particular, I think, but I don't think there's there's anyone like her in, in the WSL. She's the best at what she does. She finds spaces. She's got that technical ability. She sees things that other players don't see. And she's got that unpredictability about her, which for me, I think is is the biggest weapon you can have in football. If no one knows what you're going to do, then I just think, you know, that makes you makes you such a threat against any defence. So, yeah, really, really good to see her back. And I'm intrigued to see just just how long it takes her to get back into the frame with England, really, because I bet Serena Wiegmann's absolutely chomping at the bit to get her back with the squad and then if she keeps playing sort of the way that we know that she can and the way that she was last season then um, then I'm sure it won't take long at all. Yeah I wanted to say on Fran and Beth Meads both playing this weekend it was a real highlight of what England have been missing you know Fran's real cutting ball for Neve Charles to send in the cross for Sam Kerr's goal and then obviously Beth Meads setting up the the winner for Russo, like pulling three players towards her and then cutting back for Alessia Russo, like hugely important, thinking, intelligent players that England have been missing. And I think that's been a real hole creatively for them. And having those players back in the mix is just so, so exciting from an England football point of view, as well as like for those clubs as well. This You can't overstate how significant those types of players are. And actually, Neve Charles, we need to give some love to her because she was phenomenal in this game, actually. I thought she's really growing into her role, isn't she? Uh, Chelsea's 17th consecutive home WSL win now, by the way. Absolutely formidable they are on their own patch. But West Ham weren't without their chances, uh, Rachel. Zachira Musevic made to work between the sticks and Rianne Skinner said she was really proud of, uh, of the performance overall and she had reason to be, really. Absolutely. I can't remember a game... West Ham game, uh, certainly up against Chelsea, where they have given Chelsea so many problems. You know, it's just in previous seasons been a case of trying to hold out as long as possible. But actually, West Ham did that and created so many problems for Chelsea. And really, Chelsea just about edged it. And it was, as Susie mentioned, the brilliance of the Kirby-Kerr combination. And also, you're right to, to... give plaudits to, to Neve Charles. And it's just made me think the likes of Neve Charles, Erin Cuthbert, Jess Carter, Millie Bright, how those players have improved under Emma Hayes and her staff you know, exponentially. And they're now becoming vital cogs for Chelsea. Certainly Jess Carter and you know then her performances now at England, Neve Charles. We know Millie Bright is further down the line in that journey. But the care and the on and off field instruction that they've had, and that goes with Frank Kirby as well, from Emma Hayes and Chelsea, has moulded them into 
into absolute heavyweights of WSL players and international players. And to go back to the likes of Frank Kirby and Beth Mead getting back in form for clubs and back into the England squad, the difference in those players and players at England and other teams have got, and the difference between those players is the ability to be composed, to have that little breath, that millisecond in the critical areas. Frank Kirby, Beth Mead both showed it this weekend. To see the pictures, take a snapshot of the picture, what's in front of you, and to have the poise and the guile to be able to weight that ball, angle that ball, see the run based on that snapshot, that is something that a tiny percent of world-class players have got. Not just a tiny percent of players, but a tiny percent of world-class players. And that's what Beth Mead and Frank Kirby will bring back to England. I'm delighted to see them back on the pitch. Yeah, international break coming up uh, soon. One more game week before that. But uh, last but not least in our WSL roundup, Tottenham continue to show their growth under new coach Robert Villahan for a 3-1 come-from-behind win at Brighton. bit harsh that they're last, actually, in uh, our match of the day, if you like, because actually they don't deserve it. They've quietly been going about their business, haven't they, Spurs? Uh, Elizabeth Turland on the score sheet yet again for Brighton, though, ahead of just after eight minutes before Martha Thomas yet again Again, Grace Clinton and Rhea Percival responded to pick up their second win of the season. Um, I mean, we've been members of the Grace Clinton fan club on this pod already this season, and she's scored an absolute stunner in this one, Emma. What a signing she's been for them, not to mention Martha Thomas. What is it, four goals for her this season so far? More reasons in this game as well for Spurs to feel optimistic about their season, bearing in mind Bethany England is still out. Yeah, yeah, really exciting. I absolutely love Grace Clinton. I think she's a fantastic player and I'm excited to see what she does when she actually goes back to Manchester United. You know, how how are they going to fit her in the team? Are they going to fit her in the team? That's a real question for me. But yeah, I think Robert's done a, a, a good job since coming in in the summer. Strong recruitment, obviously, the likes of Grace and, and obviously Martha coming in and, and already hitting the ground running. But he's also mixed that up with, you know, one or two sort of shrewd signings that maybe are a little bit more lesser known that have just fit in really well. There's a nice um, sort of chemistry in the squad. They are given quite a lot of licence, fair bit of creativity. They look better going forward, which I think they really, really struggled with last season. Obviously, without Bethany England, I think Tottenham might have gone down, actually. So... Yeah, they they just look a lot more a lot more threatening from an attacking sense, and they perhaps look a little bit more organised off the ball as well. I think it helps when when you're able to retain possession higher up the pitch. It takes a bit of pressure off in terms of the defensive job that you have to do as well, because they're not deep in their own half all the time now. They're able to control moments of the game, and I think that that's helped them massively. So yeah, they already look much better this season, but. I still think there's a bit of a way to go to get back to where they were. You know, you look back to two seasons ago when they were fifth under Rianne Skinner. I still think they're, they're a way off that at the moment, but definitely improvements. And yeah, the way's up, I think. They have got some monkeys off their back, though. I mean, it was a first away win in about nine games. And it's also the first time they've won in the WSL after conceding the opening goal since they beat Aston Villa on the 12th of December 2021. A run of 19 games, which is quite incredible when you think about it. But from a Brighton perspective, Susie, they really don't like playing Tottenham, do they? It was an 8-0 thrashing last October, you'll remember. Back-to-back home defeats for them now. Have you got any concerns for Melissa Phillips' side? Yes and no, in that, like, you know, two new managers coming in. So, you know, you're not necessarily expecting uh, every team to have a perfect start when you've got big change like that. So I'm sort of, you know... 
give them time. I think Spurs were excellent. Not many teams go away and dominate possession. I think it was like 20 shots to seven or eight or something like that. But Spurs had like a really, really impressive performance. And it just wasn't really Brighton's day at the office. I think Melissa Phillips, we said previously, is a, a very, very good manager. So I, it just, I just think a bit of time. I, you know, games like this, early doors, it's no need to panic. She's a very good manager. She's got a very good team. You know, they're going to have off days while they find their rhythm and, uh, you know, kind of best formations and things like that and and get to grips with playing against different types of teams as well. And yeah, Spurs were excellent. So I think, yeah, you sort of counterbalance it with that a little bit. But, you know, to get the first goal matters as well, I think. You know, to have something from the game to take away as a slight positive is is a good thing too. Yeah, agreed. We teased ahead to it earlier, but Manchester United head out to Paris on Wednesday night to play the second leg of their Champions League qualifier against PSG. It's finally poised, one all, after last week's first leg at Lee Sports Village. Uh, where are we, Rachel, on the they've got a good chance of getting through barometer? Um, well, after that performance, it was it was sort of squeaky bum time for about the first sort of two minutes for Man United fans because PSG came right at them and it was... It looked like Manchester United were going to be toppled early on and they actually did well to come out with a draw, in my opinion, from Lee Sports Village. Uh, you know, their first sort of uh, Champions League showing, it's difficult to juggle everything, WSL, as well as the, you know, the cups that will, will come into it, as well as as, uh, as the Champions League. But it's a great honour to be in these competitions. Will they get beyond this? Oof, tell you what, it's a tough task because... The way the PSG just swarmed Manchester United, the amount of possession that Manchester United have to, had to give up and the wave after wave of attack, certainly from an early early on in the game, United, it was a little bit stunning, I think, for them. So for Mark Skinner, it's great experience to have had that game and I'm sure he'll be, I don't mean better prepared in that he was underprepared for the PSG game, but I think that is a clear insight into what they're up against. But... I like an underdog performance. And at this stage, in my opinion, Manchester United are underdogs. And I had really, really hope that they do go on and beat PSG tomorrow. Oh, injury problems stacking up for Mark Skinner's side, as we mentioned earlier on. Gabby George out for the season, it looks like. Her replacement, Jade Riviera, also went off against Leicester. So some big decisions to make at the back. Are they underdogs as far as you're concerned, Emma? What are they going to have to do better from the first leg to get over the line? Yeah, I do think they are underdogs. I, th- I 100% agree with Rachel in terms of what impressed me the most in that first game was how quickly they learned from that first half. They were a completely different team in the second half. And I think I'd find that really, really encouraging considering you know they hadn't experienced that before. And after 45 minutes of, of literally being onslaughted really by PSG, the second half, they, they completely adapted. They obviously start controlling possession. And yeah, they just seemed to work it out as the game went on. And I think that that is the most encouraging sign. And then it was just a bit disappointing that they then didn't put that into practice against Leicester on the weekend. So that's the thing which which concerns me a little bit. But obviously they did make seven changes in that game. So, yeah, I think it's going to be really difficult without Gabby George. I think she started really, really well for Man United after signing in the summer. So that's a massive blow and best of luck to her because, you know, all signs point to that. Obviously being a, a really, really hard rehab so best of luck to her but yeah I think Jade Riviere actually think she struggled against PSG her positioning in, in particular I don't think she'd quite worked out where she needed to be with Hannah Blondell on that right hand side so maybe somebody 
the likes of Gemma Evans might have to come in. She obviously made her debut on the weekend. She's got a bit of experience, but I, I am quite concerned about that position now for Manchester United because I just think PSG, the players they've got, you know, the likes of Lika Martins, that's an area that they can absolutely exploit. So I'm pretty concerned actually for them against PSG in, in the week. Susie's nodding along throughout that as well. Yeah, I'm like I think the injury to Gab. I mean, it's devastating on first level that it's her second ACL injury, and she was just like I just thought, you know, towards the end of the season or most of last season um, with Everton, and then you know the start of this season, she just looked brilliant and had finally refound the form that you know she had been hitting before she got that horrific ACL injury back in uh, I think it's 2020, wasn't it? It wasn't. It's not even that long ago. So I'm just really gutted for her on just like a human level. Um, I'm gutted for England because she was on the cusp of the England team when she got the first one. She's been on the cusp of it, I think, uh, with her performances. Again, you know, worked her way completely back and then to, you know, do the same injury is just really, really nasty. But yeah, I think it's going to be a devastating blow for Man United. They have not got enough fullback backup. The only option, because uh, Riviere went off injured as well, if her problem is, you know, not, resolved the only option is to bring in Gemma Evans in the middle and push my Letitia out wide and I just can't think of anything worse for Man United's defence than splitting up the my Letitia and Millie Turner partnership at the back right I think it's gonna um you know cause them huge huge problems and that's no disrespect to Gemma Evans but that's a really solid partnership and uh my Letitia has been so so solid but she is their backup there um there's 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 no one else so, yeah, really, really, really difficult decisions ahead. But there's not really much choice. There, there aren't many options there because they don't have a huge amount of, of fullback cover. They're going to really, really struggle. But Man United fans will take solace in the fact that they've got Mary Earps in the sticks. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. There's some optimism. Uh, we've kind of decided that they're already out, it sounds, on this pod. But best of luck to, to Manchester United. We want the English teams to get as far as possible in the Champions League this season. Just to bring you up to speed with the latest in the Championship, by the way, the top four all picked up wins. Crystal Palace, the biggest of the lot, with a 6-1 victory over London City Lionesses, a 16 minute second half hat-trick for Annabelle Blanchard. It means Palace sit third on 14 points, while Southampton and Sunderland sit first and second in the table, both with 15 points after seven games. It was also a really big weekend for Lewis getting their first win of the season. 2-1 over Watford, it finished. Uh, It means that those two are locked on four points at the bottom of the table. Uh, Now, as seasons in Europe are kicking off, the NWSL in America is coming to an end. The top six teams now competing in the playoffs. But as Philadelphia-based freelance football writer Megan Swanick told us yesterday, still a lot to play for going into the final day of the regular season. So this season in NWSL was the 11th season and very on brand. It has been just a hard fought race across the table, top to bottom, first place to last place. Really every team has the talent, has the potential. I think that's one of the main draws of NWSL is that built-in intentional parody that keeps every weekend so exciting. And heading into yesterday's games, um, that all contributed to an incredible what we call decision day, where we had six games happening simultaneously. And across those six games, two teams had already qualified for the playoffs in the Portland Thorns and San Diego Wave being in first and second place heading into yesterday's 
matches. And only two teams had already been eliminated in Kansas City Current, which was a shock, um, as well as Chicago Red Stars, who have really missed Mallory Swanson this year. But that left eight teams of the 12 in the league and only four spots available to them. So a really hotly contested season, extremely on brand for this league and a really exciting final day. One of the headline games was Angel City hosting Portland Thorns. And it definitely delivered on the excitement and then some, but it did not entirely go as many people expected. Portland Thorns are a powerhouse club if ever the U.S. has one. They have been remarkable this season, not only in their results, but in how they play. Um, and they went to Angel City and lost 5-1, which was an enormous scoreline. Angel City, on, on their end, this is their second year in the league. They are just overwhelmingly run by a very star-laden um, group and have a very appealing brand, but had yet to really deliver in being one of the top teams in the league. And yeah, five, five goals coming in quick succession. They were pressing, they were defending for their lives. And in a, a day when we had goals, remarkable goals across the league, I think Sydney LaRue's bicycle kick in the 51st minute probably takes the cake. So Portland Thorns ended that game no longer in first place in the league. They obviously fell on their face a little bit in Los Angeles, but perhaps some solace can be salvaged from that game in that even though she didn't score, Sophia Smith, uh, the young 22-year-old talent who is tapped by many people to be the next star of the U.S. national team, um, she took hold of the golden boot and she takes the golden boot away from a number of contenders, including potentially Alex Morgan, who had, I think, seven goals to end the season, including a remarkable one yesterday, where she scored for San Diego Wave as they played racing Louisville in the game that took hold of first place and gave them their first trophy in their second season. If you see pictures of the trophy, it's a bit comical. It looks kind of like a small tray that you might serve people cheese and crackers on, but they'll head into the playoffs with that supporter shield in tow. So with Portland Thorns and San Diego Wave ending the season in first and second place, they'll have a bye. So they won't play in the first round of the playoffs, which happen next weekend. Instead, they'll both get a little bit of rest um, starting their playoff fight in, in early November um, with their opponents yet to be determined. Um, the first round of games will be O.L. Rain hosting Angel City. Um, O.L. Rain definitely was not a shoe in for a playoff spot either. They entered the weekend looking mid-table, um, but Laura Harvey's side went to Chicago and Megan Rapino, who retires at the end of this season, delivered once again um, coming in clutch like we've seen her do so many times at the club level and for the U.S. national team. She scored a brace, two goals from the top of the box. Um, and yeah, well, Rain will then now play and host Angel City in Seattle this Friday. A few days after that, North Carolina Courage will have the opportunity to host Gotham FC, who drew at home in their last game of the season, but ultimately it was enough to sneak into the playoffs as well. Thank you very much to Megan for that. You were giving some love to Casey Stoney on Twitter, Susie. She's done a remarkable job, hasn't she? Megan told us there it's incredibly exciting times for San Diego Wave after picking up their first piece of silverware. 
yeah, I mean, obviously she's an incredible manager. Um, you know, anyone who has, uh, you know, watched her in England uh, when she was in charge of Man United knows that. Brilliant person as well. Really motivated to win. You know, never happy with a performance, win or lose. She always finds the holes in it, no matter how big it is. I really, really like that she said after the game that she hadn't wanted to know that Angel City score at all. But the fans kept telling her because <laughs> they needed to win, but they also needed um, Portland Fawns to lose to to clinch the uh, title. So <laughs> I found that quite amusing that they, the fans just kept shouting over the result as each goal went in because Angel City beat Portland Fawns 5-1. But um, yeah, I, I, incredible achievement. You know, the club is two years old and they've won a first trophy. Um, obviously, she's got great players to work with, but to bring a team together in that time to get them working together as a unit and to achieve what they've achieved is phenomenal. Um, you know, they're not the only new team in the league with Angel City as well and Casey Curran. And to do that against, uh, against you know, some teams that have had a lot more money put into them. You know, San Diego Wave have had a lot of investment, but, you know, compared to like Angel City, it's not as big. Just hugely impressive to see what they've been able to do in two years are just yeah staggering yeah but Rach you spent five years in in the US coming through the college system it, it must be absolutely amazing to see how the game's grown out there do you think there are things maybe that the WSL and development pathways over here can still learn from well it's very different the college system's been established for a long time now probably the best part of 40 years uh, since tile nine came in and and ploughed a lot of money into particularly women's soccer out there, which uh, allowed the college system to grow the best players and develop them and train and play like fully professional players. And, you know, pretty much every US women's national team player has been through the college system. So can we learn? Of course, we've learned it's a well-established system, but I would say now our professional game is as good, if not better, product-wise on the pitch. I think where we can continue to learn from is the marketing side, the fan experience side of what the NWSL offers. So, you know, as I said, I'd argue that our product is better, the actual playing the football on the pitch, how we grow and develop players. I think, you know, there's been so many things about player welfare that are not, you know, not, not great in the NWSL that, you know, we are very diligent about ensuring that player welfare is as good as it can be here in this country, here in the WSL. And uh, we always want to keep, you know, pushing it forward. What are we, five years as a fully professional outfit in the WSL? So, but I'd say that we've caught up in a lot of departments um, and it's, (laughs) it sounds very bitter, but to have um, the USA finally not number one in the world rankings I take some a bit of pleasure out of that. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with saying that on this pod, that's for sure. <laughs> By the way, we will check in uh, with Megan again in a few weeks' time just to see how the playoffs are going. And if you want to read more from her, just make sure to look out for her writing in The Guardian, ESPN and The Philadelphia Inquirer as well. She also uh, writes on Substack uh, about the US men's and women's teams. That's at swandive.substack.com. 
Uh, before we go, we should also give some love to the remarkable Riley Foster, who made her first appearance in 731 days after suffering horrific injuries in a car crash which left her lucky to be alive, let alone ever playing football again. Uh, the former Liverpool keeper made her on-field return for Wellington Phoenix in New Zealand on Sunday, narrowly beaten 1-0 in their A-League season opener against Melbourne City. Emma, you've spoken to Riley and, and written exclusively about her amazing comeback. I mean, it's it's quite the story. Yeah, it really is quite the story. I followed it from the start because, as you say, you know, she, she was at Liverpool at the time when she had the crash. She was on holiday with some friends in Finland and it was actually a malfunctioning seatbelt. So she flew through the front windscreen, um, fractured seven bones in her neck she also had a bit of a brain injury um she obviously had other injuries uh, ribs she had broken ribs etc so yeah really it was a life-threatening car accident she was she was found sort of you know about 20 meters away in a field by her friends and, and couldn't move so had to get rushed to hospital immediately so yeah obviously doctors told her at the time there's basically no way you're going to be playing football again and she was then in a, a sort of a metal halo device, which kept her neck and her back um, and her vertebrae in, in shape. Obviously, she then had two two years, essentially, doing rehab at Liverpool. And I know it was a really tough time for her. Spoke to her at the beginning, spoke to her sort of midway through. And then obviously, this latest interview I did with her was just a few weeks ago when she was back in training with, with Wellington and obviously looking ahead to that to that first game. And she was very honest with with how she said she felt during it. I think on the face of it, she was, you know, quite positive and she is a very bubbly person anyway. Um, and she was saying, I'll be back, you know, not too long. But she, you know, when I spoke to her, she admitted that she had actually considered her career and whether or not she wanted to, to kind of carry on with this because it was such a hard rehab process that she'd, she was doing training to go into law. She was joining business schools. And yeah, she was just sort of educating herself elsewhere because it was such a hard process for her. Uh, but it, it's just, I think it's just fantastic to see her back. Obviously, 731 days away from the pitch is absolutely incredible. I can't imagine what she's been through. And to be able to then say, you know, I've got my hands on the ball, I'm back, I'm a goalkeeper. She's fearless, she's diving for the ball. Um, I just think is absolutely remarkable. So well done to her. And yeah, I just thank her for having the honesty and the time to be able to open up and tell me about her emotions because it's been a really, really tough time for her. And she's she's rewarded for that with, with obviously a return to football and Wellington taking a risk on her as well. Well done to them because she's still a young goalkeeper and she's still still got a lot more to give. Absolutely remarkable story and we wish Riley all the best. We'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on that. And if you want to read Emma's story as well, please do. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, Emma Sanders, what a debut that was, in fact. Thank you so much. We will definitely have you on again. Thanks very much. I've passed the test. I'm delighted. Next time you I'm have... having a run, though, can we do it past 8 a.m.? Without a doubt. Yes, without a doubt. I will see you for that rum soon as the international break uh, starts. Rach, the juggling was just absolutely incredible. Um, if you didn't hear the start, <laughs> Rachel literally on the school run, uh, which is why she sounds like she's on the go. But well done you. Thank you. I'm helped out by my team. So I appreciate that. Oh, no worries at all. See you soon. Uh, Susie Rack, always a pleasure. Can't wait to see you later in the week. Yeah, I mean, when we see each other more than we see our other hearts, don't we? So, you know, it's uh, another England camp, another load of fade dates.
<laughs> exactly. Proper Susie and Faye dates, my favourite. Uh, we'll be back next week to round up the latest round of fixtures, including Chelsea against Brighton and Leicester against Manchester City. And then we'll be heading into that international break. As ever, though, you can get involved by emailing us at womensfootballweekly@theguardian.com or tweet us your questions. Make sure you subscribe as well to the Moving the Goalposts newsletter. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is produced by Lucy Oliver. Music composition was by Laura Iredale. Our executive producer is Sal Ahmad. Women's Football Weekly is supported by Google Pixel, the only phone engineered by Google and official mobile phone of Arsenal Football Club, Liverpool Football Club and the England teams. Engineered by Google, the Pixel 8 and Pixel 8 Pro are fast and secure with the most advanced Pixel cameras yet. And Google AI powers amazing features for photos and video, so you can get even closer to the game. Search Google Store to find out more. This is The Guardian. 